That leaves me just to introduce tonight's speaker. Um, it's Captain Tony Irwin, who's owner of Seawind Europe, and he's going to be talking about circuits and splashes, the history and design of flying water aircraft. So without more ado, Tony, over to you. Good evening, everybody. I can see my first goof before I even start. I should have come in a suit. But when you're flying water aeroplanes, you don't wear suits because it's not the driest and cleanest thing on God's earth. I'm also new at this sort of thing. I have some notes here. I have some bullet points. But whether I'll get everything across to you, I'm not sure. So if I don't make myself clear and you'd like to come in anywhere, please do. I don't know whether that's the norm. But um, I would appreciate if you did, if I didn't make things clear. Now, again, I didn't know what sort of audience I'd got. I'd given this lecture at uh, Loughborough RES a couple of months ago, and that's rather a mixed bunch of people. Um, John mentioned that I should make it a little bit more technical, but if I made it too technical, it could go on and on and on. So I'll tend to deal with things rather briefly, I guess. Right. Um, I guess that's sort of the first things I was going to say, but I could have made it long and tedious if I'd so wished, but again, I'm sure I'd bore you stiff. That's the introduction to the whole thing. I'm going to give a little bit of the history of water aircraft, but again, very, very briefly. Very, very briefly, because it could go on and on and on. There's been hundreds of water aircraft over the years. Not that there's many now. It seems to be, sadly, a thing of the past. That's the first aircraft that got airborne. This is the Le Canard. This was in south of France by uh, the Voisin brothers. This, this first got uh, airborne. This is a, an autonomous flight, in other words, engine-powered, not dragged by anything, by a gentleman called Henri Fabre on March 29th, 1910. Then the Americans came into the picture. On January the 26th, 1911, Glenn Curtis made the first flight in America. Curtis fitted floats to an ordinary land aircraft, and he got airborne. He did this on uh, March the 27th, 1916. Now, ourselves, the Brits, we're a bit late on parade as ever, but our first flight from water was on Lake Windermere. Oh, well, I'll just regress a little bit on that one. There's two gentlemen got together, a Captain Edward Wakefield and a gentleman who I'm assured is 100% British, but his name was Oscar Nospelius. Apparently, during the war, he was my hometown. He was at the university there during the war. Working, this is the first world war, for goodness sake, working on um, aeroplanes of all sorts. Anyway, he tried to get airborne initially with floats on a land aeroplane. It didn't work out, but in due course he managed to get airborne. Lake Windermere was chosen because it's the biggest lake in Great Britain and they didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, at this stage of uh, aviation, they thought or realised that it was safer to fly aircraft from water because accidents were more survivable. 
and this is further enhanced by the death of Charles Stuart Rolls, of Rolls-Royce. In July 1910, he was the first person to die in a powered aeroplane in England. Windermere, as I say, was the biggest lake, so they chose that. And he adjusted his aeroplane somewhat because he couldn't get airborne on the particular floats, so they changed the design of the floats. I'll get into hulls and floats later on. But it is quite a tricky business. Anyway, um, they got airborne 25th of November 1911. Now, after that, this wonderful aeroplane here, this was an Englishman by the name of John Cyril Porte. He joined with Curtis to design a transatlantic flying boat. Here, you see, it's got a little pop fighter on the top of it, which is quite something in those days. It was called then, because they did a lot of the flying at Felixstowe, so they call it the Felixstowe flying boat. And that's the pop there. I've actually got one of these props at home. It's got all the full definition, serial numbers of everything from the Rolls-Royce. And chaps have looked into this for, for me and deduced that it's uh, one of the blades of the prop back there. As you can see, not all attempts at flight were successful. That's at uh, Laugham's Plain, which, again, do forgive me if I'm teaching you to suck eggs, is uh, Farnborough, the original Farnborough. Now, the military aspect of early aviation. This, the first history of a combat mission, a seaplane, would you believe, happened in January the 24th, 1910. And this was during the Balkan Wars, when two Greek pilots flew from the Dardanelles, from the European side to the Asian side, to do a recce of the Turkish fleet. Uh, they dropped four bombs, and they were shot at, but fortunately, they missed. Now, that chap there is one of Curtis's initial jobs of um, landing on a carrier. That's the first carrier landing. Again, all this sort of time, that was 101 years ago. <laughs> Eventually, aircraft traversed the Atlantic. On March 27, 1916, the first transatlantic flight was completed by the U.S. NC-4, which is what this chap is, and piloted by Albert Reed. It flew from Canada to Portugal by the Azores. I guess you could say it was uh, cheating a little bit. Countries started making what I call monsters. <laughs> there was many strange beasts arrived. Very rarely did they get from the... Um, trial stage, the prototype stage. But then the Japs coming into the picture this stage, pre-war, of course. That's their attempt. Now we advanced many years to the 1930s because prior to that, the, there was dozens, hundreds of attempts to get airborne and what have you and with various amounts of success. So we advanced now to the 1930s and, of course, the British Sunderland, which was a, a great success, and this German monster, the Dornier, that had 10 engines on it. The inboard engines had um, props front and back, and the one, whatever it is, number 10, just had the single motor. But this, this is one of the German attempts to get across the Atlantic, which succeeded. Our shout came, of course, as you all very well okay with, the Snyder Trophy races. 
this is when we started to get back into aviation, to my mind, proper aviation. That's a Mackie, and if you recall, after about three years, we won the uh, Schneider Trophy with a max, um, magnificent speed of um, 400 miles an hour, would you believe? But I haven't looked at these two, and I think, who copied whom? <laughs> because in all honesty, they're pretty similar. But anyway, we won, guys, and we've got the cup. Now, um, again, just after the war, the Japs came into the water plane business. That's a Shinwawa there. That's a, another monster. The Russian uh, B-200, and of course, the famous Spruce Goose. I think it's worthwhile just going into the relative sizes of these because um, it gives you some idea. The Shin Shinmawa sky, yeah, he's got a wingspan of 106 feet. Do you want it in meters or feet? You look as though you're all feet people, aren't you? Yeah. Feet it is, then. <laughs> 106 feet there, uh, the weight. The Russian B-200 there had a wingspan of 107 feet. Now, the Spruce Goose, this little fella here, as you know, just only flew uh, one mile just to prove that he could get airborne and he got all the money from the American government. That had a wingspan of 320 feet. Huge monster. Now, to give you an idea of that compared to modern aircraft that we fly in or we see, the 747's got a wingspan of 165, and the Airbus, 260 feet. So it gives you an idea of some of these things. They're all smaller, technically, than the Spruce Goose. Now, the Americans, they've uh, really started going with this. Now, this little fella here is Chalks, as you can see. Chalks Air Service started in Biscayne Bay in the 30s, and it went on until 1966, that's right. That was killed off by legislation and safety and goodness knows what. But it used to be quite a sight, seeing it take off in the Miami Harbor amongst the uh, liners there. Catalina, which you're all very au fait with. I won't uh, even bother with that one. Now, our own attempts, post-war, not very successful, in fact, not successful at all, but maybe you could argue that they should have been. That's the Saunders Row, there, Saunders Row, SRA1, both of them there. Those were built, they built three of those. They all flew, but uh, they never got anywhere, sadly. There, and, of course, the Princess. I don't know how many of you ever saw that, but I remember seeing that fly over at um, Farnborough once, and it was very, very spectacular. That never would have done anything, really, but that was a oh, sad demise to my mind. Three were ordered by British Airways, British Overseas Airways in that case, and the idea being that runways, long runways, didn't really exist at this stage, so they figured that landing boats on water, you've got a great big long runway, and two-thirds of the world is water, so it seemed to be a good approach. But sadly, it failed. And all three, Britain again, all three have been destroyed completely. 
Now, my first interest in uh, water aircraft, as a young lad, I was out in Germany just as the war finished, and a friend of ours was a Luftwaffe pilot, a Kriegsmarine pilot, and he, sh he showed me a photograph, sadly I haven't got it now, of him and his uh, two other crew members sitting on that float, brown as brown, in the Mediterranean somewhere, and I thought, that looks like fun. <laughs> and it really did. I, I wish I'd got that photograph, because it really... Some, I was only a kid this size, but it intrigued me. Now, then I go on to flying water. My first aircraft was this pop. It's another aircraft where people put floats on, and there you have them. It's a rotten aeroplane to start off with. It doesn't do much. But when it got those things on the bottom, it did even less. It just didn't want to go anywhere. But the interest of that was I uh, joined a flying club in Seattle, on Lake Union in Seattle. And it's uh, one of the oldest flying clubs in the world. I think it started uh, in the 1931 or something of that sort. And a gentleman called Lana Kurtzner. And there's still the Kurtzner airbase at the bottom of Lake Union. Uh, and I remember his aeroplane, his hangar was in the water, collapsing, that but an upright. So to get the aeroplane out, you had to swing it round this big upright in the middle, and it was a, a bit bush. Lana Kurtzer is um, oh, an American with a very strong accent, and there wasn't intercom. We were talking through a speaking tube, and all honestly, I didn't know whether I was coming or going with this. But the one thing that was interesting, Lake Union, I don't know how many of you have been to Seattle, it's right in the middle of Seattle, and it's a mass of boats of all sorts, ordinary boats, sailing boats, motorboats, skiers, water skiers, and everything. And you had to take off in the middle of all this lot. <laughs> you had to wait till there was a, a gap of several hundred yards, and then you gunned it and went. Same with landing, and I always remember the turning finals, I was going below the space tower, looking at people up at the space tower as you came into land. Fascinating, but really getting me nowhere. So then I thought I've got to go up a little bit in the world, and I went to what I think was the best flying, water flying school in the world. That's Kenmore Air Park, the northern side of Lake Washington. It's a wonderful uh, um, school there, and it was the only water plane school that I've ever come across where they let you go solo. They don't. Insurance, a killer again as ever. But there you could go solo with these chaps. The usual Cessna, nothing spectacular. I'd flown them a lot on land, but then they put floats on. And I was flying uh, British Airways then, so I used to choose to go to Seattle a lot. And I used to say to the crew members, look, if you want to come flying water, lovely restaurant, north side of Lake uh, Union, I'll see you there. So I went to pick up an aeroplane, went taxied in, the guys two at a time jumped in, I flew them around, and uh, they thoroughly enjoyed it. But um, after about 17 crew members, well, 16 plus myself, so getting towards the sixth or the eighth of these uh, tours, People were getting very, very pickled. <laughs> and I thought, I'm stone cold sober. <laughs> Why should I carry on doing this? But anyway, they paid me a lovely meal, wine in the evening when I put the airplane to bed. The other one, of course, that's the other famous thing, the old 
beaver on floats, and that really is still the workhorse of this sort of aeroplane. You see it, I guess, all over the world now. Then I figured I'd got to get up a little bit in the world and these things, and I went out to New Zealand, to Auckland, and there Mount Cook Airlines had this beautiful thing, the Mallard. And um, I used to always take off from Auckland Airfield and go around the Bay of Islands, landing in the water, putting your wheels down when you're in the water and taxiing onto the beach, and there were two or three passengers, put them on board, and it was great fun, great fun. And I thought to myself, I nearly left big flying at that point, but um, anyway, I didn't. I stayed with it. That was a lovely airplane. Now, there's many light aircraft, but this here, the Lake Amphib, again, folks, do forgive me, I'm sure you know all this, but there we go. Um, the Lake Amphib is the one you see all over the place now. This is. It's not a good aeroplane. If there's two of you and a dog in, it's a bit of a job to get airborne from water. From land, it's not too bad. It's incredibly noisy because you've got to push a prop and that doesn't same as this guy here. But I remember coming across um, three of these. I got stuck 2,500 miles up the Amazon once, a little place called Letitia. And there wasn't a flight out for a week. So I thought, well, I've got to get out. And a small town, 500 miles of jungle. Let's get out. Anyway, there's these three of these things floating in the river. And I thought, oh, perhaps we can get them to give us a, a lift to Brazil where... Sanity prevailed. And uh, anyway, I went and I asked them how much to be, and they gave some incredible price, something like six times what you'd expect to uh, rent one of these. And it was shortly afterwards I discovered that uh, they didn't want passengers because they were all full of drugs going out to Brazil and Colombia and goodness knows what. So I sort of understood why they didn't like it. There's uh, another famous old aeroplane there. That again is, oh, I think it does everything at 90 knots. Stalls, dives, flies, you name it. But again, it's a good old wo wo workhorse, and it has been going on for a long, long time. Now, I progressed, or regressed, I guess, really, to little microlites on water. These are fun, but good weather fun. Uh, I guess there's one or two in England. I'm not sure about that. There's quite a few in France. But the great thing is you can take the wings off and put them on the trailer and stick them in your garage and what have you. But they're very flimsy. They're governed by the rules and regulations of weight, as you know. And a friend of mine had one of these, and he was flying on one of the lakes in uh, Florida. And sadly, he chose to land on the top of a, an alligator. And he tore the bottom of his boat, his aeroplane. It sunk, or he sunk down, and he clambered onto the wing. And he was watching this croc sort of blinking and coming back. And then somebody rescued him in the boat. So I always figure if you're flying in uh, alligator or crocodile water, have something a little bit more substantial. Now, this is the aeroplane that I've been <clears throat> interested in. I hope I don't bore you stiff on it. But it's one I know more than any about. I was instrumental in the initial design of this. It looks oh, 22nd century nearly, but it isn't. 
It's now 25 plus years old, would you believe? But it's been sold for a long, long time as a kit aircraft. And we've sold, I think, about 150 around the world of these. They're in New Zealand, South Africa, Brazil, America, Canada, Scandinavia. But being British and a kit aircraft, it was outside all the limitations of a kit aircraft, an amateur-built aircraft. The only thing out of the five criteria that they had to meet that we met was the um, stall speed. Well, something as sleek as that, to have a, a low stall speed, it was quite something. But sadly, the paperwork, Gatwick's got files that deep on it. But sadly, it um, can't be sold as a kit plane in England. Germany the same, Holland's the same, France is the same, so it goes on. So, oh, and also people were modifying. They were putting great big 300-horsepower engine on that. They were putting 500-horsepower Pratt & Whitney's on it, and they just couldn't get airborne because of the high thrust, which I'll deal with later on. Uh, and uh, they were modifying it, thinking they knew better than the people that made it and designed it, and we did have quite a few crashes. So we figured we've got to certify. Now, that was uh, three years ago, four years ago nearly, and we figured it would take about um, two years and $20 million. We're now five years, and we still haven't finished, and it's near $50 million. You know, it, it's a sad indictment, really, of an um, aeroplane, when it's a proven aeroplane. Um, having uh, done quite a bit with them in Canada, which is the, where they were originally designed, then they moved to North America, and I thought, well, I'll have a go at this in um, in Europe. And I went across to Lithuania, would you believe? Now, I'm sure many of you are going to say, why on earth Lithuania would come in? But Lithuania is an incredible aviation country. People do not appreciate it and realize. They were the second country to get an airplane across the Atlantic, would you believe? And they still commemorate this on the back of one of their banknotes, the 10 Litas banknote, and with these two chaps that uh, flew this aircraft across. Not that one, but one of the old tatty old cloth and wood things. Uh, and also, they uh, they built all this and designed the MiG-17, which is still a killer aeroplane out in Lithuania. Also, and the factory that uh, I reopened, I guess is the best way to put it, was a factory that was made by the Germans in 1915. And that factory is still going, just going, I think, really, uh, to this day. Hence, we were in there. They designed, I think it was about 1916, they designed a um, biplane fighter, which uh, the Royal Air Force wanted to buy, but politics didn't allow them to do it. So in other words, they know what they're doing, these guys. They really do. The chap I had as my uh, chief engineer chappy there, he'd, he was in charge of one of these Russian uh, agricultural farms, and he'd tinkering with little aeroplanes on the side. So he knew all about it. He was an incredible guy. That's me in the middle. Uh, but as you can see, we chose to fly in winter, first of all, and it wasn't good. Uh, bitter cold, minus 25, something of this sort all the time. And when I was doing checks, I just couldn't do a check on the ground because there was zero um, 
friction uh, to go into ta taxi into snowdrifts to get a bit of purchase to get going with the thing. Now, that was the first uh, C. Well, the other one was. I forgot how to go back. Doesn't matter. Um, we had the first one. It was a very old engine in it. Um, always nearly Time X, but it flew beautifully. It really did. The stall was a bit hot. It had a wing drop quite rapidly. So then we went to build the second one. Now this is quite a machine, this one was. I put a little bit of, um, changed the, the camera of the wing here, and I got a very steady uh, stall out of it and a steady sort of spin. So that really answered it. But this had everything in it, the Ephes and what have you. It's the same company, that Ephes, as what the Americans, I guess I've got to say had, but maybe have, for their high-speed fighters for low flying at night through the mountains. We had this vertical presentation here, which is good. The aeroplane was a beauty. It flew an absolute treat. When we sorted out the problems with the engine. Brand new engine, five hours bench run at Lycoming. Um, this gave a, a lot of information, something like 150 parameters, I think, of the engine. I realized there's something wrong. We had to strip it down all cleared. Anyway, I had my first flight on it. 25-minute flight. In theory, a first flight to run an engine in, you want about two and a half hours on it, high, high power. Uh, my first flight was 25 minutes when the engine failed four times on me, which was not good. With a brand, brand spanking new engine. I, one place I didn't know where to put it down, and they were building a new road outside uh, Kaunas, where this was, in Lithuania. And I thought, well, that's a good place to put it down. But anyway, there was vehicles in the way, and goodness knows what. So I brought the wheels up again, and the engine fired on me. I had to continue underneath some high-tension cables to get out of it. So to my mind, <laughs> stay with a good old engine. Don't go for a new one, because that was it. Having sorted that out, it was beautiful. Now, these are more... Uh, see when we've got, this is the place for this sort of thing, really, where it's nice and warm and, uh, there's none of that <laughs> going around and, um, snowdrift to snowdrift. As you can see where these are, Colorado, that's, I think that's Florida, that's, uh, somewhere north, that's Oshkosh, I think. Now, the aeroplane's been bought by many people. And if you've got enough money, you could have one on your boat. This boat was called the Nadine, and it was Coco Chanel's boat. I think to hire it with all the, the goodies here, and the aeroplane and the chopper, was something like $20,000 a day or something ridiculous. But there was a some idea that um, it was somehow into the drug trade again. Why do I talk about drugs with this aeroplane? But um, anyway, they they were in the Mediterranean, got the aeroplane off, flew somewhere in Italy, sorry, and uh, it sank in the deepest part of the Mediterranean. <laughs> and Lloyd's still don't know quite where it is. But that was quite something, as you can see, there's on there. I used to, when the Concorde used to go to Oshkosh, this Oshkosh, obviously, we... Um, 
I'd charted it in the last time, just before we'd had that nasty crash at uh, Paris. And because of this, we had a bit of publicity with all our aeroplanes in front of it. <laughs> Obviously, that's a gorgeous aeroplane, but it could only land on water once, don't forget. We could land on water time and time again. Now, um, there's just a shot of um, one or two of them endeavoring to fly in formation. Not the red arrows, but it does show you that there are more than one. It's been sold all over the place. You can fish from it, as you see there. We had a, an outboard motor on at one stage on the side because running the prop was uh, well, a bit wasteful and it frightened the fish, so we put a little outboard motor on and we could fish from either side. This is, I think, Florida again. This is New Zealand. We had a couple out in New Zealand that were quite a stir. But again, all these are kit aircraft. The cabin inside is beautiful. It's not a very good picture. Beautifully well done. These are two other sea winds. Now, the width here, to give you an idea, you saw the Beaver a little while ago, and I'm sure you're all familiar with the Beaver. It's a big aeroplane for this size of aeroplane. This, believe it or not, is four inches wider inside from side to side. It's a big aeroplane inside. Now, what's happened to all the amphibians? God knows. <laughs> the Russians are in the picture, which I'll show you something of. Now, this little fella here, this one I used to call the poor man's jet fighter. We had a 36-inch prop inside there. And we were having a big trouble with the design of the inlet there. We found that the thinner it was, the more the air was disturbed, and it uh, disturbed the, the uh, prop and goodness knows what. And then I heard of a bloke that built um, an Edgley in England. And I rang this chap up, and I said, uh, can you give us some tips on the curvature of the intake there? Gentleman over yonder, I don't know if you, whether you recall this, I recall it clearly. And he said, oh, God, it's complicated. You've really got to go into higher maths with this. And I said, okay, give me. And I was copying this com complicated formula for the curvature there and another complicated formula. And he said, you've got to take everything to three places of decimals. I thought, can you remember this yet? And I thought, my godfathers. And then when I'd finished that, I said, that's complicated. And he said, when you worked it all out, the three places of decimals quadrupled the with the, the angle. Do you not remember that? Well, that is the aeroplane I was talking about. This is another one that's on the cars. It's either got uh, one or two engines. From That's the original designers of the uh, Sea Wind, and this is as well. Now, that one, I had a bit of an argument with the designer on this because he'd got the elevons far too close to the vertical. I said I'd prefer them out here somewhere. So I've got more elevator control than I have rudder. And I was proven with this. It's, uh, when I flew it, I was the first one to fly this. Well, up from land at this stage, but it, uh, due to have floats on, which it did have. And uh, it just had no elevator control. So it then had to be modified. Um, John's formula didn't work, so <laughs> we had to change it. We put the engine outside, so it goes on. But anyway, these are... That's now a thing of the past, called a phoenix it was. 
uh, I haven't really given this one a name. That's flown and I'm quite successful. But in Canada, and like all these things, waiting for money to continue further. Now, the bigger aeroplanes that are about now, the Canada, Canada 215, which is, you know, is the water bomber. That's all over the place. Canada, obviously, America, and south of France, they've got these. And it's proven itself very, very successful. Chinese version, the Shilong 5, another monster. I have seen them fly from a distance, but what's happened to that, I don't know. Now, the only people at the moment are really into this uh, water aircraft, this is the light water aircraft in this case, are the Russians, that's a Beriev 103. Uh, it's all aluminium, and I'll go into the materials for making aeroplanes new cars. But it leaked, and it really didn't do anything. Two little engines at the back, noisy. There's another one of their monsters. It's in the, the Black Sea, the Beriev A40 Albatross. That's still flying, I believe. I'll leave you to read that. The bit at the bottom is sailing. Perfection does not exist yet. It certainly doesn't. There's so many problems with them. I'll go into holes in due course and tell you about that. Now, uh, design requirements. We get to the old British Sunderland. You see the two bumps at the bottom here. That was our idea, our idea to get it out of the water quickly. And it worked, but generally speaking, aircraft now have only one step on them. Uh, the bigger aircraft might have two steps on. They're still fiddling. Because the, the problem with a, a hull, aircraft with a hull on it, it's got to get out of the water early, no splash all over the place, and it's got to be good aerodynamically. But to be good in the water at high speed, you've got to have completely the opposite design to aircraft. So it's a happy mix between the two. More later. Another thing with water aircraft is the angle of incidence. You can't rotate in water, as you can on land. Bring your nose wheel up on land, and you've got a different angle of incidence, and away you go. But on water, you can't. So the floats have got to be at a different angle, much as four degrees, in actual fact. So that, of course, doesn't help the aeroplane to go faster. That's another thing that retards it. The Dornier... Dornier Sea Star. I um, had a lot to do with that a few years ago. They were trying to get back in the picture again. But it's never yet succeeded. It's a good aeroplane, there's no question about it. There's about three of them flying, but all in uh, Germany. But they've now decided to go ahead and build, or that was the last I heard in Canada, strangely enough, the same airfield that we build the sea wind. But why it's never got on, I met all the Dornier family, people that were still alive, and there was friction amongst the whole of the family. Each one wanted to do something different and market it, or this, that, and the other. And sadly, it's never really got going. You do see it occasionally in Germany. But my last, I heard from them, they're at this place in Canada, just south of Montreal, where we are now getting on certification, and strangely enough, both of them on the same airfield, uh, Saint-Jean-de-Richelieu. So maybe they're, they're not in competition in any respect. Obviously enough, this is, could have as many as 10 people on this thing. Now, Kiel and Hull philosophy. 
Again, you see the one step there, hardly a step at all there. And it is a battle royal as to which way to build your aeroplane. This is now quite an oldie. And this was built and designed in England a few years ago. That chap there is a, a very old flying boat catapulted from uh, an aircraft carrier or a cruiser, I guess. The step there is a very important part about the whole thing. You want it there to break the water and to get aerated at the back there to get going. Uh, I think I'll come on to this later on, in fact, with our help. Now, <laughs> Sponsons, that's the, the little guy at the end. Now, you see there's only one left there. I don't know what the hell he was doing. But the Sponson is a very important part of aircraft, hull aircraft, not float aircraft, because whenever you stop, you're going to flop on one side or the other. Maybe it's the wind, maybe it's a symmetry with fuel, maybe flow of some sort. So the sponson is a very useful thing to have. We've got sponsons on the sea wind, but um, they're not retractable, they're fixed, as you'll see as I go on, hopefully. And when we changed and modified them, we found that they were gave us another 10 knots, would you believe, to modify the sponsons. And the sponson, in effect, is the same as winglets on a big aircraft, but they can't put them down there because they're going to tear the runway. So really, if they were uh, below the wing, they are far more functional. And obviously, in the water aircraft, they serve dual purpose, more functional to get the airplane flying better, and also when you're on water. As I say, one is down, you start your engine up and you've got to taxi relatively fast and you get aileron control. You can bring them out of the water and away you go. Materials. Canvas, originally of course, canvas and wood, no good at all. Wood, water pervasive, can't use that. Now, this is where we get to more modern aircraft, aluminium. Aluminium all those aircraft you've seen so far have been aluminium aircraft. And they are good, light, but it's hard to shape as you want to do. It's got to be riveted together all the time. And uh, if you land on water, people tend to think water's soft. Believe you me, it isn't. And so every time you land, the rivets tend to move a little bit. And after a while, you lose your um, ability to keep the water out. Now, with a, a float plane with this same problem here, you really have got to suck the water out of the floats. There's very often between six and eight compartments in the float, and you've got to suck this water out before you get going. So that's 16 compartments, maybe, uh, before you, you get going. Um, <clears throat> if you don't, of course, it sways to the back, and your CFG is gone. So it's uh, quite a job jumping from float to float to get rid of it. So, what next? Fiberglass. No leaks, clean, smooth, easily shaped and easily repaired. And it really is a blessing. You can hit something hard at the bottom with your hull and it scratches at the uh, fiberglass. But it's so easily repaired. Your repair kit is a, a bottle of resin and a bit of um, tape. And away you go. Uh, fiberglass material could be the best material. This is a uh, Russian fella again. It's only a little guy, as you see. Two seats. Now, 
water aircraft, hulls or floats? There's your floats, there's your hull. They act the same in many respects, but not in all respects. Because the things you can do with floats that you can't do with hulls, which I'll describe to you in a moment or two there. But conversely, these again is a land airplane that somebody's put floats on. And with floats, you lose something like 30-40% of your carrying capability because of the sheer weight of the, the floats. They also, um, as you're looking out the side, there's these great big floats either side, so you've lost a lot of your view. And it also gives you a pendulum effect as you're turning, they swing out. Not good, really, but I would hazard a guess, aircraft of this size, 90%, 80% are float aircraft. Now, there we go. Floats on normal land aeroplane. Those are huge floats, you see, and there's a requirement for the float to be, um, I think it's one-eighth in front of the prop, and also about 30% uh, behind the COG of the aircraft. So they've got to be big. And for some reason, it's beyond me, Edo floats are the big people in the float business in the world. They don't want to make them a fiberglass. I really and truly don't know why. So we get this problem of leaking and all these areas you've got to suck out the water before you go. Not the best. Now, when you're on water, it's quite a... I won't go into detail on this one. It's quite a hazard how to turn the aeroplane. You have your ailerons over, you turn the rudder, and of course you've got to have a water rudder on the on float aircraft. A water rudder behind each float. On an amphib, they're retractable at the back. Um, it's a necessity. There's no question about it. But it's the sort of thing. Another thing on your checklist that you've got to remember to bring up as you start uh, getting on the plane on takeoff, and you've got to leave it up for when you land, put it down as you slow up so you know where you're going. Now, this is an interesting one, rough water flying. This is really quite something. You can bounce from wave to wave to wave with this. One of the things that the people have done is if you've bounced off a wave and you haven't really got flying speed yet, just put a little bit of flap down and just catch it and away you go. But it's quite a, a problem. Now go back to the, go back to the float thing. One you can do on rough weather, and this is suggested that you do it, is take off on one float to ease the load, the bump on the float. So as soon as you can get Ellen fully over, as soon as you can get going, you lift one float up, <coughs> grab it so it doesn't go too far, and the aeroplane will get airborne a lot quicker. There's a single float idea. Uh, it looks a bit uh, hairy, but it's not really. But it's one way of getting airborne in rough, choppy water. Now, it's another one that's interesting. Calm water flying. Everybody think, oh, lovely. Beautiful day, no wind, sea for miles. Let's go flying. Calm water flying could be one of the more dangerous aspects of water flying. This might give you an idea. There's the, the young lady there floating on water, and there's the shadow of her lilo down below. Now, that is, I've no idea, 10 feet, 20 feet. But the thing is, coming into land, you really cannot tell where the water level is. 
you tend to look at the base of the lake. This is very often the case up in Canada, and the lakes in Canada were beautifully calm. And people have flared, thinking, or started to flare, thinking that's where they're touching now. They've hit the water 20, 30 feet above, still pointing down, and they go head over heels. So one way of deciding where the level of the water is on um, water aircraft is, if you can, if you're near to a, a shore, and the shore's reasonably straight, use the shoreline as a, your guide to the height. If not, and this is something that any, I take it there's quite a few of you that fly land aeroplanes here, rather, I imagine, or have done. But there's um, <clears throat> one thing that's alien to any land flyer, and that is in calm, glassy water, you can see the reflection here, you don't land using your ASI. You land using your VSI, your vertical speed indicator. The idea is that you're coming down very, very gradually onto the, the water, and you're not going to know exactly when you're going to hit. So the moment you hit, you grab it because it tends to pull you forward. But it has killed and broken a lot of aeroplanes, calm water flying. That's as good an illustration as any I get. You get home to base finally, and well-deserved pint. This is my good lady when I teach you to fly these in the Seattle area on stage. What do you do? You come back to base, and there's the, well, not necessarily to base, wherever you're going to go, there's the jetty, and it's full of boats, ordinary boats, sailing boats, motor boats, what have you. And you can't find any room to get in. So you go backwards and forwards, and always one or two kind folk come out, push their boats together, so you can get in. But the danger with this is they kind chaps, they've come out, they're on the jetty here, and your wing comes up here, and they grab the wing to slow you up. So what happens? The nose of your boat goes in, and you bump your floats, and damage your floats. So... You have to thank these people for helping you, but you have to say, please don't touch the wings. <laughs> um, and uh, another way of coming in, there's no brakes on a water aircraft. None at all. So uh, whatever you do, is it's going to get the aeroplane moving. Doing a, a mag check on water is also a bit of a, a hassle. One tends to do it going round in circles, ever-increasing speed circles on this. And uh, it's, uh, you've got to do it very quickly, but obviously very well indeed. But then coming into harbour, again, there's no uh, brakes. So you tend to cut off one mag. So you just come in one mag, and the, the engine's going putta, 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 coming in slower. When you get in, you've got to cut the engine, jump out of the door, onto the float, onto the jetty, and away you go. It's quite an art, an actual fact. <laughs> now, that's an ideal docking, but I was inferring that there'd be boats all over the place here. If you can come in like that, you've uh, cut one mag here, you've chopped your engine there, and just slowly come in, jump out onto the jetty, tie it up before it hits the sky, and you're, you're there, you're home for a pint, as I say. Um, another fun and games of these, river operation, fast flowing river operation. Do you land into wind, normal aircraft would? 
or do you land into water flow? Or do you land downwind, normal aircraft would, but with the flow? It's a case of flying round and round several times, sussing out what the wind is and sussing out what, uh, how the speed of the river flows and you land accordingly because obviously you want to land with the flow of the water if possible to slow your touchdown. It's quite a laugh in effect. And you want to get into the side with it. You, um, very hard to get into the side. I'm talking about a rough river bank now with bushes and goodness knows what. And you just cut the engine and sort of hope that you can float in the side. Going again, there's another problem. Do you do this or do you do that? Has the wind changed? The, the flow is still there, but has the wind changed? So it gives you a little bit more to think about than you would do with uh, an ordinary land aeroplane. I'm not going to go into this at all. <laughs> There's your porpoising regime. Porpoising is, obviously enough, when you've touched down and you haven't got the right body angle or you're a bit fast, and the aeroplane gets airborne again from the water, just like... Remember when we used to throw stones, flat stones, to get them to bounce? Well, obviously, you don't want them to bounce, so it's quite a, an art getting the right angle and working properly. The whole aircraft, this is the sea wind again, obviously. Now, uh, I did mention a little earlier on that the, the difference of the two, but coming into a jetty again with this sort of aircraft is a different function altogether. You can come straight into the jetty, but you've got to make sure you're coming very, very slowly. You've got to get out of the front, because the canopy goes up. Get out of the front, grab the rope. No, we've got to talk more nautical now. The painter, grab it, jump onto the side, fend the nose off, and in you go. But the ideal way to do it is a long, thin jetty where you can go inside the jetty, and the jetty comes underneath here, and then you can jump out as normal. Another thing with amphib, different from ordinary land flying, is the, in effect, the reverse action of the thrust. With any land aeroplane, you open the throttle and those dents that come up, whether it's a 747 or a, a Cessna 152 or what the devil. But with an amphib, it is different because you've got the high thrust. These are sort of lake amphibs again. So the moment you open that throttle, the nose goes down. This can be quite noticeable on some of them. You retard the throttle, the nose goes up. It doesn't matter so much in the air, and you don't really slam the throttle up and down, but the danger is if you're about to touch down on water and a log, a log sometimes goes below the water and comes up, and you've suddenly got this log in front of you, that's what you want to do. You want to jump over it, go around, but your nose is going to go down, and that's when you could hit the water fast and nose down. So you've got to grab it rather smartish. But again, I seem to be running uh, this sort of thing down, but uh, not so. It is absolutely magnificent if you get into it. The one of the reasons behind the design of the sea wind, as I say, it's 25-plus years now, not a, um, a new aeroplane, was the two chaps... The engineer and his brother, who was a designer, they used to go fishing and dropped off with a beaver on floats. And there they were for two or three days, and they thought, what a horrible-looking aeroplane. We could do something better than that. 
And that's where the sea wind started. The amphib, wonderful. You can do two things. You got wheels down on land, wheels down the water, roll onto land, fly obviously enough, and land on water. This again is Oshkosh. This is a, my good lady wife. We got organized where she would come in the Concord. And uh, when I was there demonstrating the sea wind, it was quite a good arrangement. <laughs> but the Amphib is a different sort of um, aeroplane altogether. Now, this is another point. Lots of aeroplanes, obviously, have landed on land, retractable gear aeroplanes, and have not made it because the, uh, they've forgotten to put the wheels down. Well, that's fair enough, but on a, um, an amphib, um, like the sea wind, you could land anywhere on land, really. If you'd forgotten to put your wheels down, if you landed on land, it doesn't do a lot of harm. You can land on snow, ice, anything. Being a tough underbelly of it and fiberglass, it scratches a bit of paint off if you've inadvertently not put your wheels down. But nonetheless, it's repairable. Back to a little pot of resin and a bit of fiberglass, and it's there again. If you do it on a, a metal aircraft, it's ruined. Now, the, the big danger is not coming in with your wheels up. It's just, it's just a damn nuisance to put your operating bill up. It's coming in with your wheels down in water. And there's more accidents from amphibian aircraft landing on water with the wheels down because you go right over. <laughs> Quite had to do. Uh, there's one or two points I'm sure I've missed, but I see we're up to the hour, which I'm supposed to finish. So if there's any questions, folks, don't make them too technical because you might not get an answer. <laughs> I just wondered if you, if, you, if you ever had a flip one you just described. I have. No. People no. have. With the, with the floats, is if you think, ah, oh, there can't be much water in, I got the water out only a few hours ago, and you take off, the water then floats in the floats, goes to the back, and you suddenly have a dreadful rear CG. Now, I have seen that happen. That's killed people. And then you want um, retractable floats, so they come up against the hull to make your more aerodynamic. Well, uh, it's an interesting question, that, because um, we've got somebody that's cribbing our design. We were just a little bit late, the magazine got hold of it, before we um, locked it in for the 14 years. And the Russians have bought an aeroplane out, which you could easily... Confuse the two. Engine there, it's exactly the same, but only a thought it should have been with two James Bond films. Now, the first one was, uh, oh, got names of them here. Doesn't matter which one now. But we were all set to go. Piers Brosnan, Barbara Broccoli flew in it. And one of the shots there was where, uh, we landed in this aeroplane, Caribbean Island, and uh, Brosnan was jumping out and into his BMW Z3. And they were doing the initial runs of the film, just like now. They're on there. And apparently this film, this is one of the Bond films, I find it, I can tell you, was being financed by BMW, the factory they'd built in 
America. And they were releasing the uh, Z3, I think it was, or the first one anyway. And when the first shots were shown here, all the people in there said, oh, isn't that beautiful? And of course, the BMW guy said, lovely. But people weren't saying that to the BMW. They were saying it to the, uh, the sea wind. And so, of course, BMW said, we're financing this damn film out. So it was replaced by a Cessna 175. And then the next one, I've got the names of these two here, but I can't find it, forgive me, was when the Bond film started, the aircraft with Bond on board was flying around the dome and then landing on the Thames and dropping him off at the MI6 building, now Westminster Bridge. And I'd got rights to do all this. <laughs> and... Uh, CAA had given me rights, the um, Tourist Board of London had given me rights, and I'm working out the distance between the arches of the Westminster Bridge and what have you. And they specified that we turn round the dome, and I'd got to go down to, what's the big park to the west of London, to turn round there with only a single engine, and I'd got to keep over the, uh, the Thames. But, but sadly again, um, Barbara Broccoli, who's the well, director, Kubi Broccoli, used to run the Bond films, and that's his daughter. And she said, rang me up and she said, Tony, we've got to do something about this. I said, okay, what's that? She said, we've got to look at the product placement deal. And I, being me a bit naive, I wasn't quite sure what she was talking about in this. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, we, we've got to look at $100,000 to put it in the film. We hadn't got $100,000. So we, we've lost out quite a bit with these sort of things over the years. My <laughs> um, question was whether um, the aluminium tanks, which suffer from the rivets, you know, leaking and so on, could not be made welded by welded tanks. Many years ago, I was involved in the Ashton aircraft, which had exter large external tanks, and these were welded. But, of course, the, weld stre uh, the strength of the aluminium after welding is relatively low, so you have to be... Careful, but as far as the as far as the main part of the yeah. aluminium, it would be away from the. You could strengthen it. Well, with, I, I think possibly the flexing of the float as it hits the water. Yes, you're going to get quite a bending moment out here. I don't know. It seems quite structurally um, brave to have put the engine on top of the fin like that. Uh, what was the thinking of that, as compared to a conventional pylon? Uh, just beauty. Uh, well, obviously, it's far sleeker looking than that is. Like the Lake Amphib, which had this dreadful thing in the middle. That was uh, an awful looking aeroplane. That at least does look far more sleek. Somebody said it looked like a bit like a V1. That's the easiest one. I can think of one aircraft that doesn't have a hull or floats. It uses a hydrofoil. Have you thought of using those, or have you looked into it? Well, the... Um, the American fighter, I've lost the name of it now, they had uh, skis that came down below, but it's a bit like that one I showed you, that um, SR. It never really succeeded. It did fly and it flew fast, and I think it was supersonic, but there's no end of problems with them. There's a French one that's done it, yeah. yeah. I say to you, there's thousands of water aeroplanes, and all honesty, I couldn't give you a rundown on all of them. Far be it.
If you are interested in water aeroplane, the web is an incredible place. You can see water planes. There must be a thousand, I would think, from the Nospelias that I showed you there to the present day. But unfortunately, it's all come to a grinding halt, or appears to have done, which is sad to my mind, but there we go. Tony, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating uh, talk. Enjoy.